Hello everyone, Simon Jacobson here, and I hope you're well. We will talk, be talking today about trustworthy traits, what they are, how to acquire them, and how to spot them in other people. This uh, program and class is dedicated in honor of Yitzchak ben Leia and Rivka Vika Bas Rechel, and their children Ruth, Nicole, and Michael. Thank you for all your support and your merit and honor this program and so many others reach literally tens of thousands of people all over the world. If you want to dedicate and sponsor a class or a program, just go to MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship. Okay, trust. Trust, a big word. Trust is a vital and critical component in every aspect of life. Without trust... Almost everything would be compromised, if not outright destroyed. We need trust in relationships. We need trust in communication. We need trust in any given interaction. Trust is, as I said, a vital component. But which criteria define trust? How do we gauge whom to trust? How do you know whom to trust? Which traits and behaviors engender trust can these characteristics be acquired? Now, many of us have been hurt and justly weary of trusting another. We've been betrayed. Or sadly, may have even totally lost trust in others. Can, is it possible to rebuild healthy trust after betrayal? So that's what we're going to be discussing, a very critical component in life, but one, as usual, not spoken about enough and definitely not analyzed and probed. And we're going to dissect the anatomy of trust and trustworthiness and learn what it really means, how to cultivate it, how to, make it, how to, how to, how to um, it, even train yourself to be more trusting and also to be more trustworthy. Because this is the key to any solid, healthy relationships where we have safe environments and, um, <clears throat> and enduring relationships. So that's the topic of this week's discussion. So where do we begin? Let's talk for a moment, as always, go back to the beginning. The purest form, the most pristine form of the human being is the newborn child. Like freshly fallen snow, a newborn child has not yet been jaded, has not yet been shaped and impacted by parental attitudes, by, by, education, by educational and school attitudes, by social pressures and peer pressure and all of life's ups and downs and disappointments and successes. So when you look at a child, we can get a picture of the closest approximation of what we are at our healthiest. So from a purely scientific point of view, the child is the, per, is the best version, I'd say the perfect version, but the cleanest and healthiest version of who you are in its purest form before it's been shaped and, and directed and guided and in any ways, in any ways, um, well, shaped is the right word, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so look at children. The children we see are both trustworthy, meaning you can trust them, and they trust until they discover that their trust is disappointed. They're disappointed in the people they trust, or that trust is betrayed. But children nas naturally trust. 
which can get them into trouble as well. But if thinking of a perfect world, trust is a healthy thing, and children have no reason not to trust until they are hurt. And the same thing is children are trustworthy. We're not talking about whether they're reliable. Obviously, they're not mature yet, so they can do make mistakes, and you can't just trust them to take care of things. But you can trust them to be sincere, that they don't lie on their own. They won't be duplicitous. And again, until they learn otherwise. So what you see from this is that the human being, each of us, is born both a trustworthy and a trusting person. It's because of life circumstances and life's experiences where that trust is stolen from us, or at least limited and, and uh, compromised in us. And that's due, first and foremost, due to that trust being violated. So a child will give a parent the benefit of the doubt, but once it, and therefore even if, let's say the child says, promised that tonight the parent is going to take the child out, and the parent doesn't show up, or even more subtle things, that type of reliability that children just rely on the validation and on the nurturing and on the security of having a parent around, and that parent does not appear, is, abandons them, or in some ways absentee. So once, twice, three times, the child has resilience. But after a while, that child will start lowering their expectations and, yes, lowering their trust, because next time someone says to them, trust me, they say, well, you know what? And, and not necessarily in words, but their unconscious says, I trusted, and it wasn't necessarily, they, no one lived up to that trust. Now, in extreme cases, that trust really is deeply violated. In more, more, uh, call it more mild forms of it, the trust it becomes wary. And there's many variations, one level to the next. Obviously, I'm not going to go through all of them. We're talking about the general picture, but you get the idea. So what happens as we lower our expectations and our trust is so-called not lived up to, promises are broken, um, uh, the, the, the reliability and consistency is not there all the time. The security is taken away from us in some extent. So obviously in direct proportion to that, the trust will be, will be weakened and wane. That doesn't mean we still don't have within us because we're born with it innately, that ability to trust, but we just don't allow ourselves to trust because we're afraid. We're afraid of being hurt. So we put up our defenses and we put up our armor and we build that armor. When we grow into adults, depending on how much, trust we had in our lives and how much of it was compromised, that will directly impact how we deal with new people, whether it's, whether it's in relationships, whether it's in personal, intimate, and romantic relationships, or whether it's in even relationships at work and so on. There'll be, there'll be in direct proportion to how much that trust was violated will be the wariness that I'm mentioning and even the fear and the resistance of really getting involved and always having a back door to get escape, escape from because... Once we allow ourselves to be vulnerable and we trust, we can be hurt. For those that go the other extreme, that had healthy relationships, and there was much to trust, they will find it much easier to go into a relationship because they have trust, and they give the person the benefit of the doubt. Now, of course, every mature adult is going to always, hopefully, be have some discretion, because just because you grew up in a trusting environment doesn't mean that every person you can trust so you'll definitely weigh that. But it's much easier to trust because it hasn't been hurt. If it's been hurt, then everyone is guilty until proven innocent. And in extreme cases, 
people are continuously seen as not trustworthy to the point that sometimes a person who's really been violated, been hurt and abused in that regard will often create a situation where they'll test the other person to the point that they will make, they'll almost intentionally sabotage a relationship and say, you see, I couldn't trust you. That becomes unrealistic expectations and basically writing the script of what you expect to happen because it happened in the past, which is that ultimately there's no one to trust. And every person listening to this, every one of us, fits somewhere into the spectrum from one end to the other. And the same thing is with being, that's trusting others. The same thing is being trustworthy. You can argue that they're directly linked to one another. The more trusting you are of another, meaning the more reason you are trusting, the more trustworthy you will also be. Because it's reciprocal. However, if you don't trust others, obviously you yourself are not going to make yourself available to be trusted. You'll be evasive, you won't be, you won't show up. Sometimes you'll just get out of a relationship, you'll end relationships, commitment will be an issue. Is it always the case? Can a person be tr- not, n- not trusting others and themselves be trustworthy? That's possible too. Because sometimes we feel that we need to please and we need to really go bend backwards. So we don't trust others, but we constantly make an effort that we should be trusted. So there again could be different scenarios. I'm not going to go analyze every particular scenario. I just wanted to be thoroughly cover at least the, just in brief, the different situations and different scenarios. So then what really lies at the heart of trust once you analyze it this way, once we dissect it and we start with the child within us and as we grow into adults. You can see, you see, I always use the word vulnerability. Trust has to do with being vulnerable because when you trust someone, you're letting them so-called, um, you're, you're allowing them to make a move that can affect you without you putting up all your defenses. In other words, I say, I trust you. You may, be, you may potentially hurt me. You may not live up to my trust. So trust and vulnerability come together, but vulnerability can be a very positive word. For some, vulnerability is very terrifying, especially those that are not trusting people. But vulnerability could also be a very beautiful thing. Like true love, true intimacy, true love is celebrating your vulnerability with another. Because there is that trust where you can let go and you know that person will hold on to you, will embrace you no matter what, in almost an unconditional way which is another word. Real trust is connected with certain unconditional love that a parent gives a child. And later in life, hopefully the person that you or your spouse, the person that you commit to and marry in a sacred relationship will also give you that type of uh, unconditional commitment. But it goes further than that. Because here's the big question. Is trust built on, on perfection? When you say, I'm trusting someone else, I will be vulnerable, I will rely, I will trust them to say what they, to deliver what they promised, to protect me because they say they will. And I will take the risk. And then let's say they don't. What happens? In other words, every human being makes mistakes. Is it a result that they abandoned me? Now, if you grew up with that type of experience, so then, as I said, that's your default state psychologically, then you're expecting to be abandoned. You're expecting to not... You're expecting your trust not to be lived up to. However, regardless, even in a healthy form of trust, the fact is there's no perfection. 
even when healthy parents, can children always rely that the parent will always be there? There'll be mistakes. People make mistakes. So let's throw now another word which is vital in this equation, and that is accountability. Trust is not built on perfection, it's built on accountability. So it's not about that the person is always going to perfectly provide for me, perfectly protect me, perfectly always be there exactly as I want them to be. That's not a possibility. That's not realistic. We hope in young age, and even in older age, parents will be there, but everyone will make their mistakes. But what we like to know and this is where trust comes into play. We would like to know that there's accountability on that person's part. If let's say your parent promises you something, and let's say they deliver a certain type of security, and for whatever reason they cannot, and they come and apologize. Not that a parent has to necessarily apologize to a child, but apologize nevertheless, because I could have, should have been there. I could have been, and then I wasn't. That accountability compensates for the imperfection of human beings. And that's a tremendous concept. Where they say, they say to err is human, to forgive is divine. Why? Because when there's accountability, you can elicit another dimension in the relationship because you say, you know what, that person is imperfect. And yes, they may have in some way not been there for me, which would give me good reason and cause not to have trust, but they were accountable. And that accountability compensates. That accountability allows for that nurturing environment that engenders trust. So trust, therefore, you can say is built on a few things. Number one, that yes, there's someone there for you. In a way, even when it's inconvenient, in a way that's consistent. But in addition to that, even if at times there may be a lapse, there's an accountability. And of course, not a repeat of the same mistake. So you see, when you add that into the picture, it makes a real relationship very, very doable and possible. Because it's not about perfection. Perfection is unrealistic. Perfection is usually expected by people who've really been hurt, and they think the only way I will ever trust if the person is going to be perfect. Will never lapse. Will never, will never disappoint me. That's not a possibility. But accountability can be expected, and that's what creates the environment for trust because you could, there's accountability. Let's just use examples in nature. In nature, when you have, for example, just simply you plant a seed in a garden, an apple seed, a flower seed, whatever it may be. You water the garden, you weed it, and naturally nurturing and uh, will cause this plant to grow. Okay? But let's say there's a drought or there's something else that happens. So look in nature what happens. It compensates. It does something. When there's a forest fire, even though on one hand it destroys the forest, but then the forest regenerates in fascinating ways. So we see in nature there's a built-in immunity system. And that built-in immunity system is also reliable. So though, yes, there may be setbacks, and there may be even worse than that, maybe even disasters, but there's an immunity that bounces back and helps it grow again. So let's apply that now to psychologically. We say the human being is compared to the tree in the field. We too are that way. We have a resilience that even if a trust was betrayed, or even if, there's a, if there was a lapse, or there was some form of betrayal, intentionally or not intentionally, it is that accountability that's our immune system that brings back the greatest of a human being and say, yes, you know why you can trust me? Because I will be accountable. I will tell you and be transparent and upfront. 
full disclosure, not a cover-up, not more lies. A lie is the ultimate cause for distrust. When you, someone lies to you, and so one time you may forgive, a second time you may overlook, but then if it's repeated, at some point you say, I can't rely on this person. They're liars. Accountability is the opposite of a lie. That even if there was a lie, or there was not a lie, but there was something elapsed in a person's commitment, there's accountability. That accountability reignites the capacity to have trust. So when people say, trust me, we all know what our reaction is. You think I'm going to trust you because you told me trust me? It's like a line people say, a cliche. No, trust is, the, is, is, not, is to be earned. You cannot ask someone to trust you. It's something to be earned, something that with behavior, accountable behavior, reliable behavior, things that are consistent that I know I can rely on, that engenders and helps trust develop and grow and, and become a force in, a person, in people's lives. So we see from this, if you talk about the qualities, what are the qualities that are necessary that, um, that they will call the trustworthy traits, the trustworthy traits, just looking at the actual title. What are they? So number one, they are consistency, reliability, knowing that you're there for the person. Even when it's inconvenient, that definitely adds to it. It's not just you're there, but even when it's inconvenient, when a parent will stay up late at night because the child is not well, well, they may not go to work, and you see clearly they pay a price. The second thing is that count. Well, I would say three things. The consistency, reliability, even when it's inconvenient, and accountability. Those are the key traits in trust. Obviously, there are more elements to it. Kindness, showing um, that you are going out of the way to be empathetic, to be sensitive to another person. But it has to be consistent for it to become a trustworthy trait. So that defines what they are, the trustworthy traits. How to acquire them now? Let's go to acquire. Now, remember, I said that trust is something we're born with. Both that we are trusting to others and that we are trustworthy. We're born with it. So you don't really acquire it. What you can do is reacquire it after it's been lost or in some way compromised. And we reacquire it by going back to an environment where you can test it slowly. For example, if a person actually has lost trust in others and they themselves are also not that trustworthy at this point. So what's the solution? The solution is not cold turkey because there are good reasons that you don't trust because you have been hurt. You want to now know that you can't trust. So the approach to take then is to slowly test the waters. I've talked about this a number of times, the concept of the cognitive life raft, which is an expression used when a person has been emotionally hurt and therefore they've withdrawn and retreated emotionally, which means they don't make themselves available, even though they may put on a game or an act, but they're really not there. So how do you re-engage a person who's been hurt like that? And they've retreated literally like a turtle within its shell in the fetal position where we curl back up and we don't really allow anyone to touch us and we don't therefore touch anyone either. What do you do? So you can't just force a person to say, listen, let's force the, the head of the turtle out of the shell. There's a certain fear, either pal palpable fear or even not palpable. Maybe it's subtle. But there's a certain fear or resistance. So how do you do it? Slowly, slowly, your cognitive life raft is let your mind explore first. You meet somebody on a date. Let's talk about that type of relationship. But it could be in any situation. You talk. You test the water, so to speak. Not in an aggressive testing way, 
but just like getting to know somebody. And the mind is a lot more trustworthy than our emotions, because when our emotions are hurt, it's subjective. The mind can explore something even if it's not something you're going to relate to. You can read a book that you and, and, or, or, be familiar, or get, allow someone to pitch you an idea. As long as your emotions are not involved, there's much less fear, if at all. So that's the trick. Use the mind, the mind which can imagine, which can dream, which can step away from your emotional subjective experience and just let me explore. It's like sending a scout out there to check it out. No risks involved because all you're doing is looking into it. So your mind allows you to go to places that your heart won't allow you to go if you've been hurt. So the mind goes, and right now it's not making any commitments. As the mind becomes more comfortable with the situation or with a person, then slowly, slowly think of it like a child that's hiding under a table or hiding in a closet. The child is terrified, but it lets its mind peek out. And once it peeks out, then, and you feel that there's something here to work with, then slowly the child will also peek through and the emotions themselves will also emerge, slowly. So the cognitive life raft is an escape, basically. I wouldn't say the word escape. It's a life raft. It's a place to travel to where you're dreaming of a situation that you don't yet expect and you're not re- ready to give, give, let go and allow yourself to be vulnerable. But cognitively, in your imagination, in your mind, you can let, allow yourself to travel there. As you see and research and do the d- discovery and do your due diligence, slowly, slowly your emotions can begin to peek out because they're under the guidance and the protection of the mind. And the mind can say, it's worth looking into. The emotions are still going to need time, but you have a mind that's protecting you. So in a way, the mind becomes your nurturer and the force that you trust, you trust your mind. Now, some of us have been really hurt where we can't even trust our minds. So that's why maybe you talk to a mentor, maybe you take more time, you explore, you read about it. In other words, you want to get some objective, reflective perspective before being impulsive or emotional about it. But then slowly, what can happen is that it opens up your heart, and your heart says, you know what, let me test here. Let me now emotionally test the water. And that's a more difficult step. But once the mind has so-called paved the way, and has like, uh, uh, paved the way is the right word. I want to say it like, um, uh, uh, open the door, pave the way, then the emotions can slowly, behind the mind, come out and test the waters emotionally. And you may discover, you know what, this is a person I can trust. Again, I'm not suggesting this be done overnight or quickly, but it can be done. So therefore, we have a way to actually rebuild trust and trustworthiness even after it has been betrayed or we have been betrayed, even after there's been a breach or a violation. A process that helps us reacquire, as I said before, it's inherent. We're looking to reacquire trust using the cognitive life raft of men, among other methods that help us build and grow and connect in a trusting way. Now, till now we've been speaking about trust in human beings. There's also the concept of trust in God. Betochen Bashem. And there's actually verses in the book of Psalms and other places that says that the only real trust is you can have is in God because God is unwavering and consistent and totally reliable being that God is God. Human beings at the end of the day are fickle and mortal and have their mistakes. Yes, it's true. We compensate on that through that those lapses through accountability, which is divine. 
and forgiveness, which is divine, but still the true trust is in God. That's why you have the expression that even after the Holocaust, where people have argued, how could you trust God anymore after what has happened? So many answer, how could I trust human beings after what has happened? I only have God now, because I know human beings have betrayed us. So when you're talking about trust in God, that, of course, is a whole other level that adds the ability for us to build trust is by connecting to the God within us, the soul. Your soul is a piece of the divine and it's completely reliable. No one can take it from you. No one can give it to you. It comes from a greater place. And that, on a deeper level, is actually from where we really have that inherent trust that I described before at, at birth. Inherent trust in others and inherent being trustworthy yourself. Because we have that part of us that's absolutely trustworthy, that part of the divine that is completely reliable, completely consistent, and completely accountable. The question, the, the challenge is, how do we glean, how do we draw that trust into our personal lives? And the answer to that is, comes another ingredient in the characteristic, in the traits of trustworthiness, and that is humility. An arrogant person cannot be trusted. A person who's driven by self-interest that is the driving force in their lives. They may be trustworthy for a certain short period of time under certain conditions because they benefit from it. But you can't really rely on them because what drives them is their interests, their self-interest, me, me. A humble person is not about me. As soon as you're not in the way, that's a trustworthy element. So the humility of a human being adds and allows trust to become to engender trust because that becomes a container that channels the divine, the trust in the divine in a human being. When you see that humility, you see that the person is not thinking about themselves but about you, is sensitive, has empathy, cares. That humility is yet another trait in context of trust. Because humility, as I said, takes you out of yourself and allows you to become a more transcendent person. Which brings us to the ultimate beauty of trust. That trust creates environments and creates relationships where there is a symbiosis, where there's a harmony between different people. Because when everybody's self-contained and it's all about me, 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 there's, not, there's no cooperation unless there's an agenda, unless there's strings attached, unless I, I, I get something from it. But when there's humility and each one knows that my role is indispensable, so that creates a trust that they all trust each other. Think of everything in the universe is really built on that. That idea of everything working in harmony with each other. Our human body, the trillions of cells, the millions and, and thousands of systems all working with each other, each one knowing exactly their role and each one giving when they need to give. And you think about it, there's a certain magic, there's a certain resonance when you see that type of teamwork, when you see that type of um, harmony, that type of synergy. Think of a symphony. Different musical instruments, different musicians, each one playing exactly when they need to play. They rely and trust that the other will pick up where they need to pick up. And that's critical in any successful venture. Whether it's a pro doing a project, whether it's a business, an organization, a film, or as I said, a symphony. It's dependent on the fact that each can trust the other. When you hire people and you know that you can sleep peacefully because they're doing their job when they need to do it, is a tremendous peace of mind in that. Think of the other way around, where you hire people and you have to look over their back and second guess and not sure, did they do it? And you keep asking them, did you do the job? Did you not do? It creates so much, it drains us. 
So trust is actually also a way of creating that calm and peace in our lives, where we don't have to constantly be guessing and second-guessing ourselves, and we have that ability to really rely and trust on others. So that comes down to, as well, that bigger picture, the divine symphony, so to speak, of life, and how each of us contributes our unique, indispensable role. At the same time, we are dependent on the others, and that is, requires trust. Look in the military, for instance. The military is the best example, where it's in a very rigid form, in a very rigorous form, I should say, to the point that court-martial, look how severe if someone is a breach, if there's not listening to an order, because the hierarchy and the chain of command is so critical that you all have, and everybody has to trust each other. Because you're talking about life and death. A moment can cause who knows what. So in the military, you see that necessity of trust, trusting your colleague, trusting your commander, trusting the commander, trusting the soldier. Everyone needs absolute trust. And if there's a breach of that trust, it undermines the entire effort. In other areas, maybe not as rigorous, but as I said, in company organizations, you also need that. And that's a synergy that, that, that resonates. Think of the beauty when we see the magic when we see different factors going together. You ever see a baseball team or another, or another sports team, we're talking about a teamwork, not a single individual, single person sport. You see that teamwork, when everything is working seamlessly and fluidly, it's like, it's, it, it makes you cry. It's so beautiful in its cohesion, in its harmony, in its synchronicity. And this is true in nature, this is true in the human body, and so on, that we all have that ability to... Um, work together, and that's how trust becomes such a critical ingredient in building anything in life. And of course, the ability for us to blossom and flourish because we have that peace of mind. When you have your nest, when you have your security, and then you can fly and expand your wings. You see a bird that does not have a nest, someone does not have a home, does not have that security, that trust, they're constantly pursuing it. And they're wasting a lot of energy and it's draining them to find that little respite, that little home, that hearth where they can trust and just be trusted and just feel comfortable. When you have that, it allows you to do so much. So many ways, trust therefore becomes a critical component in the entire picture of how we interact with each other, how communities are built, how society is built, how nations are built. And ultimately how the world will look in the best of times, in the messianic times, when there'll be that total harmony and that total trust. So trust is necessary in really building your own self, your own confidence, but also in creating a cohesive community that's, that synergizes, that cross-pollinates, that everyone benefits from the other because you know, I do my part and then the other will do their part, then comes back to mine and the others, and there's a constant flow of that many different forces that come together. So with that said, trust therefore is a a uh, fundamental piece of life, one that is necessary in so many different ways. We discussed what, what are the character traits, what are the traits of trustworthy traits, um, how to identify them, um, how to uh, f- discover it in other people, and how to acquire it, or I would say reacquire it when it's lost or betrayed. And when you have that formula, what you then have the ability is to correct wrongs to, uh, to repair any breaches, and of course to call upon when necessary, I would say always necessary, the trust in the divine. And the currency of the United States, it says in God we trust. It doesn't say in God we believe. 
Faith is more of an, a passive state. Trust is an active one. Passive means you believe in something. Faith, trust means I trust in it right now that it will be there for me, that I can rely on it. It's active. It's present in my life. And the same thing spills over, as I said, humility, which is now another trait, add humility into the equation, a person that's humble that allows that divine trust to enter into your being, into your life, which is why it's so vital, especially in marriage, in all relationships, but especially in the more intimate and the more, the more uh, I would say, the more um, internal ones, because there it's even more important to be able to, be able to be vulnerable and celebrate that vulnerability. We at the Meaningful Life Center, we believe that this is part of our philosophy, part of our approach to life, which is all the work and all the array of materials and programs that we offer are about that. We can't ask you to trust us. We want to earn your trust, and we want you to earn, and we want to earn your, we want to earn your trust, and we hope you, and we, we, you, earn our, we earn, you cause us to earn your trust. <laughs> Sorry about that. Because it's a really a symbiotic thing. So check us out online, MeaningfulLife.com. Many resources, programs, all directed to building that inner confidence, that nurturing, the necessity to really, that is so important in life, and the ability to be a symbiotic relationship. And we ask you, share these programs, comment on them, send us your critique, positive negative, whatever it may be, because we all need each other to complement each other to really improve and grow. Because that is what life is all about, that each of us brings our indispensable contribution to the world. Each of us has something unique to contribute, which is indispensable because, and that's why it's completely trustworthy. It comes from a higher place, from a divine place. It's not man-made. It's therefore completely trustworthy. And when you access that, you become trustworthy. And when you're able to see it in others, you start trusting them as well. So you can say finally, as a final ingredient, is seeing the divine in others is where you begin to be able to really engender and cultivate trust. Because you're seeing not the human part. Even the human part, as I mentioned, lapses or others can be compensated for through accountability. But you see more than just a person that you're looking at. You're looking at something that was created by the divine. A divine creature that's part of your life. Yes, they may make mistakes, and, but if they're divine, they will also be accountable for them. And that's something you can learn to trust. Then it's not just human beings. How can I trust a human being when human beings are so easy to hurt us, especially when they get involved in their own self-interest? As I mentioned before, the opposite of humility is arrogance. And when you're self-consumed, self-interest is not something trustworthy. Now, now, in all times, this is important, but especially in our day and age, where so much of life has become devalued, and depersonalized and commercialized. There's, that's why there's such a yearning for things you can trust. We look around and everyone's telling, trust me, buy this, selling you everything. Most of it is not necessary for your inner inherent value. So in a world where things are commercialized, then you start thinking, do they really care about me or they want my money or they want my commitment or something of that nature? So in our world, even more important for us to connect on that soul level where trust is possible. On a commercial level, yes, you can trust it to some extent. They brand it and say you can trust our product and it's been checked and we have a certain uh, longevity and, and, uh, and customer satisfaction. That, you know, they say trust our brand. Now, sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's not true. But there's always an agenda. 
when you bring the soulful dimension to it, what you're addressing then is introducing something that really allows for true trust to be built. I always find it ironic that in the financial markets they call it trusts. They call it the securities. When in truth, money is the first and most fickle things of all. The least thing that's secure, the least thing that's trusted. Now, of course, I understand what their point is that to say you can trust, you can put it in a trust, you can put it in security, to have a secure financial nest egg. But money itself, by definition, is, is uh, in, in, impermanent. And impermanent things do not, uh, cult- do not engender trust because they are impermanent. You can't rely on it. You can't take it with you to the next world. It's spent and so on. It has its value. It creates the illusion of something you can truly trust because people say, with money I can buy anything. But real trust is trust in people and in God. People, I mean people that you can trust, healthy trust, because that is a true reliability that you have in somebody. But only when that person has the humility and has the divine component, that spiritual side to them, that allows you to trust. So what we have here is basically a, a methodology and formulas and ingredients that teach us what is, requires, what defines trust, how do you um, acquire and build it, and how do you um, and how do you identify it in others to the point that we can create trusting and trustworthy relationships, that symbiosis, that harmony that goes both ways. And in doing so, we all become musical notes in one large symphony, each with our indispensable role, our trusting role, each of us can rely and trust the other, and they in turn can trust us. This is our mission at the Meaningful Life Center, so please participate with us. Join us in this synergetic experience. Let us build that trust. We're here every Wednesday, 8.30, live, but it's archived, so truthfully, these broadcasts and programs are available all the time once it's broadcast. We're here every Wednesday, 8.30, and then they're archived. So join us in this journey I look forward to everyone should have a very trusting worth, a very trustworthy week, and a very trusting week. And looking forward to see you next Wednesday at 8.30. Be well and be blessed. Thank you so much.